Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfair's Christian Church, and I've got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hi. <laughs> we are back again for another episode, working through the book of Isaiah, chapter by chapter, and uh, this week we are tackling chapter 31. One, which is a way shorter chapter than the last chapter, so this will hopefully will be a shorter episode for all of you that have been... Uh, listening through some of our 40 minute episodes uh, I'm hoping this one clocks in a little uh, quicker so um, but yeah uh, it's been fun to work through these we are in a section right now where we're talking through um, the last couple chapters before we hit a story section in Isaiah where we kind of jump away from prophecy and we focus on a story that um, takes place uh, during the time of Hezekiah king of uh Judah, and uh, we get to see some of the things that um, Judah uh, politically was involved in at the time with Assyria, and it's going to be fun. But we've got a couple more chapters left before we hit that, and right now these are sort of these closing chapters of Isaiah's thoughts about the city of Judah and Jerusalem and what's going on in this city, particularly focusing on how um, these, uh, how God has really looked at the city of Jerusalem and looked at how they're doing different things and uh, what's going to happen as a result of them not following after him. And right now we have this, uh, in this chapter, we're going to focus again on Egypt because Egypt, I mentioned this in the last chapter, but Egypt plays a huge role in the story of uh, Jerusalem in particular and Israel. Um, anytime the uh, nation of Israel and Judah decide to go to Egypt, for anything. It's always sort of this um, literary theme that kind of is meant to tell us, the reader, hey, things are not going to go great for doing this. And we're going to see this chapter is sort of a like a uh, more um, specific view of that in particular. And we're going to kind of watch uh, why God has such a negative view of Egypt. There's some references here to Deuteronomy as well. Um, in Deuteronomy in particular, um, the Israelites were not supposed to ever have a treaty with Egypt in particular, and um, not uh, the king of Israel was not supposed to uh, get horses from Egypt, and that's going to get mentioned in this chapter. And so a lot of things may seem strange uh, in this chapter if you haven't read Deuteronomy. So I'm going to soft plug that book if uh, if you really want to appreciate this chapter and why this is such a big deal for God. Uh, Deuteronomy is a great book to read to sort of get some uh, some background to this. So yeah, go ahead and uh, um, do that in your spare time. It's, it's a fun read. But um, I think uh, we're just going to jump straight into this unless, uh, Ashley, you had any opening thoughts before we jump into this. No, that's it. We can go ahead and jump in. All right, let's do it. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen, 
But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise, and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals, and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble, those who are helped will fall, all will perish together. This is what the Lord says to me, as a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by no human sword. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. All right, so we open this chapter up with another woe, which is pretty typical of Isaiah at this point. Uh, a lot of the chapters have opened up with this woe, and uh, we focus on uh, the first two uh, verses in this are focusing on going down to Egypt for help and relying on their horses. Um, there is a little bit of a call here also to... Um, Exodus 15, where in Exodus you have this focus on um, the, uh, it's basically the first time the Israelites ever record a song of praise to God. And one of the things that they focus on in Exodus 15 is the uh, rescue of um, uh, them after the Red Sea, you know, and that's, that's kind of the typical story that's uh, told all the time about how um, the Israelites escape out of Egypt and then they come to the Red Sea and then Moses parts the Red Sea and uh, they get over on dry ground and the Israelites, uh, I mean, the Egyptians try and pursue them and they get uh, swallowed up by the uh, storm, uh, by the uh, waters of the Red Sea. What's interesting is that there's a focus in that song chapter uh, of uh, how powerful their horses and chariots were and uh, that uh, God was way more powerful than them in this uh, in that song and the Israelites are the ones singing that so it's really interesting that in this passage we open up with um, Israel trusting in their chariots and horsemen which are the very things that they praise God for destroying uh, in Exodus 15 and so it's kind of you're kind of meant to kind of call back to that and think about the fact that uh, oh wow they're trusting in these things that uh, they in the um, song that they give to God and praise God for, uh, they 
tell uh, they sing that God is stronger than these things and so it's sort of this role reversal and it's really sad in that kind of way that we open up with this and so uh, I, I just kind of love that it's like a sort of uh, like little Easter egg of sorts of the callback to um, Exodus 15 and what's going on there um, but then we move to uh, verse 2 where he says yet he too is wise and can bring disaster he does not take back his words and so we're focusing really on God at this point we're focusing on what God is going to do because um, is Israel and Judah are trying to take this alliance with Egypt. Uh, and we've kind of focused on that already with um, chapter 30. So um, I've, if you want to like sort of a more background on what was going on and why they were doing this alliance and stuff, you can go back and listen to that episode. But um, they're forming this alliance with Egypt. And so we see God is not okay with this. And um, what he's going to do is he's going to rise up against that wicked nation, against those who uh, help evildoers. Um, and I love this interesting kind of comparison that he gives here where he says the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Um, that's kind of a call yeah. to the Egyptians uh, kind of mythos. Um, the Pharaoh, for instance, thought of himself as a God and uh, thought of himself as sort of a God among the gods that they worshipped and so there's kind of a call to Egyptian thought here and then uh, this idea of their horses are flesh and not spirit it's this idea that um, you know spirit is uh, the concept that we often give to God and the spirit of God working in people and um, the spirit of God going out and uh, leveling Egypt in the 10th plague for instance um, and having all that power through these spiritual means and uh, them relying on horses that are just flesh is just this kind of like um, you know doesn't make sense even based yeah. on their story and I, I like that um, the end of that sentence at the beginning of verse two where it says he does not take back his words which I think it was really important when forming an alliance it's like you kind of have to be concerned about are they actually going to be able to f fulfill what you're depending on them to do because I know that there were some instances where Israel would form you know just like in this instance they would form an alliance with the nation and the nation wasn't able to help them the way that they wanted it to so whether they were being betrayed and um, betrayed intentionally or unintentionally because they weren't able to meet the needs of the nation of Israel it was like the fact that they were never able to completely fulfill the words that they spoke to Israel and I just kind of like that comparison between that and what God is saying is that you know not only am I wise and can bring destruction but I don't go back on my word whether it's a word about disaster or a word about protection I don't go back on it so it's like they were depending on somebody else who can't really guarantee that they can keep the words that they're speaking to them so yeah and I, I've thought about that a lot in terms of you know relying on human help versus God's help. Um, I know that at and, and times we are supposed to rely on human aid, but it, for me at least, I've always felt like one's way more reliable than the other. We'll just put it that way, yeah. you know, and it's that, that tendency to, uh, you know, humans uh, have a tendency to be selfish and to want to betray alliances and not be loyal. Whereas um, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, I think one of the major themes is that God alone is faithful and God mm -hmm. is um, the one that will always be loyal to what he says he's going to do. And so, you know, it, it for me, at least, I've always seen that as like um, 
if I were to put my trust in humans or put my trust in God, I'm always going to put my trust in God because that's just uh, way more reliable of a, uh, he's more trustworthy, I guess is what I would say. And and speaking of his, his trust, that kind of goes back to alliances in itself. Like people form alliances because they get something out of it, you know? So it's sort of like, if they don't feel like they're going to get anything out of it and the alliance is immediately broken because it doesn't benefit them. And I think the difference between that and God is that, even if even if there's a moment where he feels like the nation of Israel is not benefiting him per se, like they're not glorifying his name or being obedient to his commands. It's like because he cares about them and he loves them, then he fulfills his word. He fulfills the alliance on his end, even if they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And I think that's another part of his trustworthiness is that he isn't just in it for what's good for him, him but what's also good for the nation of Israel. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's another thing that we see get uh, portrayed throughout the entirety of the Bible is that um, God uh, oftentimes makes promises and covenants with Israel that Israel never keeps, but that uh, he continues to find ways to make the covenant work out in the end, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I love the idea that like, for instance, um, Jesus is an Israelite. And so his covenant with Israel, I will do all these things. If you do all these things, does get fulfilled by Jesus being an Israelite and doing all these things, you know, right. it's just different than everybody kind of expected. And so, no, I think, I think you're totally right on that. There is sort of an interesting uh, break here after um, the first couple of verses. And I see this uh, chapter more as sort of a, a splicing of three individual thoughts that are all kind of meant to um, encompass one of the uh, themes of this chapter, which which is just God's might and faithfulness during all of this. But this um, middle middle section here, which begins in uh, verse four, um, you can see it's an obvious break because it says, "This is what the Lord says to me," and so we can assume this is probably Isaiah saying this. Um, As a lion growls a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So we kind of see this cool. Uh, reference of God being a lion, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for any Narnia fans out there, there you go. Um, this great little little uh, reference to that. Or I guess I would say Lewis is referencing uh, this. But, um, yeah, I just I love that little uh, line. And the idea, um, too, for a lot of people, I don't know what you would think of lions in our time period today because we don't really interact with lions in, in the United yeah, States in of the America. <laughs> and they de- generally don't do much in the zoo. Uh, yeah, they just lay there, I guess. <laughs> and you can't feed them. So no, like... <laughs> no, no. And so I would say that uh, for those of you that uh, do not live in an area where lions are kind of a normal part of life, um, one of the things that uh, that made this so powerful for people in their time was that lions often uh, roamed at night and uh, they would hunt at night and uh, sometimes sleep in the morning. Uh, Oftentimes like your house cats will do. (laughs) And um, so what made them so particularly dangerous was they didn't have a lot of light and you didn't know if they were stalking you or not because of just uh, it was dark outside. And so a lot of fear sort of was held around these beasts because they just sort of came out of nowhere and they're actually really fast. Um, and so having this, you know, also this fear of losing your sheep to lions, that was a common thing is if you were shepherding your animals, you'd often lose a lot to lions. And we see that in um, David's kind of fighting a lion over his sheep and things like that. So there's a huge um, sort of fear of the unknown I guess I would say with lions and there's this kind of uh, it's not just their power and strength but it's also 
that can kind of come upon you um, without any warning at all. And that's kind of what um, I think is being heralded here is that God's going to come upon everyone sort of without warning. Um, And uh, he's going to do battle on Mount Zion. Um, There's an interesting little reference here in uh, verse five with like birds hovering overhead. The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. Um, So you you think in one moment that the lions are going to take down Jerusalem, that he's going to, you know, um, destroy Jerusalem for all of its um, unfaithfulness to him. But then you have this interesting verse where it says he's actually going to protect um, Jerusalem. And that line, like birds over overhead hovering, um, that is a reference to Genesis 1-2, where um, it talks about the Holy Spirit uh, hovering over the waters of the world. And uh, that uh, idea of the Holy Spirit hovering, um, that uh, verb there is a uh, uh, verb that's only used of birds sort of fluttering. And it, it also kind of uh, ties into the idea of the Holy Spirit flying over Jesus like a dove in the New Testament when he gets baptized. And so it's this idea of this kind of protective bird that's like sort of hovering over its nest, uh, protective of its uh, little ones. And it's this kind of call to what God is going to do to Jerusalem and tying all these themes together of the Holy Spirit, Jesus and God all kind of in this one little verb here which I think is really cool. And he's going to shield it and deliver it, and he will pass over it, which that's a reference to Exodus 12 and the Passover. Um, I think I think you don't need any more of my explanation of yeah. that. You should know that story. Uh, and um, how he'll rescue them. And yeah. so you have this really cool, just like really um, uh, thematic kind of jump to all these different passages in Scripture in this, in this thing. Yeah, I was also thinking about David and Goliath too. Um, and it kind of reminded me, about how Goliath, when he comes down to the Israelites, he's basically taunting them for several days and basically trying to scare them off with his words, which basically kind of reminds me of what's going on here is that like, no matter the things that are going on, like the people in Jerusalem are going to be safe and that whatever God is doing, he's not, he's not frightened. The people are not going to have to be frightened. And it's like, even though Goliath was threatening the Israelites for several days and they were all afraid, David comes to him. And then he says, you know, you come to me with a sword and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. So it's like the idea that because they're trusting in horses and chariots, God is like, I don't need you to have, you don't need horses and chariots. Like if you have me, that is more than enough and so um, it's like this idea that the weapons that they think that they need are not the weapons that they actually need like all you need to do is go in the spirit of the lord and that in itself is enough so yeah i love that it's it's i think uh, i could sum up what you're saying by uh kind of asking this question it seems god is asking which is which would you rather have a horse or a lion as your ally (laughs) (laughs) Um, and i think that's definitely what he's getting at here um so we have this moment here in verse six where uh it's kind of another break and it's a new section again where um, you see sort of, even though there's this um, protectiveness that God has over Judah, um, you also have this um, again, return, uh, return to um, uh, God calling them to uh, go throw away their idols and come back to him. And, you know, you get this sense of the, the fact that God's being so kind to them to be so protective of them when they are not uh, loving him at all and are worshiping other gods and being sinful in the ways that they are. And so it's this sort of sad moment in which he's like, look, you know, I'm going to be protective of you. I'm going to take care of you, but you have to uh, return to me, you know, and that's part of that's part of the deal here. (laughs) You know, it's I can't just always be the one that's always rescuing you. I need you guys to give me 
um, what I what I am owed, which is you know uh, faithful worship. Um, and I think that that's just uh, really a point that is driven home here in this one verse, where you kind of have a break from all of the the might and power of God for to focus really on His call. And uh, I read a lot of heartbreak even in this verse of just Him wanting them to. Uh, you know, like return you Israelites to the one you have greatly revolted against. Like there's history in that uh, line, you know, there's a lot of history and pain in that line. And I think that that's just one of those things that um, makes this whole book um, so beautiful and also so sad um, overall is just how much she's taking care of them in spite of what they're doing. And then you have um, this ending section, which is focusing on Assyria, which is, you know, kind of a uh, call to what we've been talking about for all of these different chapters. All of these chapters have focused in some way around the fact that Assyria is a really terrifying nation that is threatening to destroy Jerusalem. And uh, they are going to Egypt because they're hoping that Egypt will save them from Assyria. And that's not what God wants them to do. He wants them to go to him and he will save them from Assyria. And so we have this uh, final promise of God saying Assyria will fall by no human sword. So hint, hint, Egypt, uh, a, a sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labor. That's an interesting line there because that's exactly what the Assyrians would do to a lot of the captives that they captured is they put them in forced labor. Um, and so it's this sort of role reversal there. And their stronghold will be will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And I just love that ending. What do you make of the ending? What, what do you think is the fire that is in Zion and the furnace that's in Jerusalem? Um, when I think about fires in relation to God, I either think of two things, like either he's destroying something or he's purifying something. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like, well, which one is he doing here? I mean, he could be doing both. He could be destroying the other nation with fire, but then purifying Israel with that fire at the same time um so that's usually what I I think of um because I think that that would be a very good purifying process for Israel is watching the Lord not themselves or Egypt destroy this nation but watching the Lord do it and kind of restoring their faith back in God and restoring their relationship with him and so it's like burning off all the things all the um, the idol worship and all that stuff about in the same time also destroying their enemies. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's both a judgment and a mercy is the way I look at his fire. Uh, it's a mercy in the sense that it's purifying them, but it's also a judgment in that it's painful, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's that, it's that duality of that, that I think um, is sort of wrapped up in this. And I've, I think I've talked about this before, but the theme of fire is one of the biggest themes in the entire book of Isaiah. You can see this in Isaiah six where um, he has the, uh, 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 fiery coal touched to Isaiah's lips to purify his lips. Um, you can see it um, in, Hezek- in Hezekiah's story, which we'll get to. Um, Hezekiah gets um, sick in one of the chapters, and a fiery poultice is put against uh, his sick boil, and that heals him. And uh, you can see a lot of the different uh, metaphors of fire purifying in some of the chapters we read on the um, these nations that he's going to judge fire kind of crops up every now and then in a lot of those chapters as sort of a a metaphor of how he's punishing and purifying and things of that nature. And so I like to think of the entire book of Isaiah as sort of looking at the whole world and God saying, I'm going to send fire on it all. And some nations are going to survive it and be purified by it. And some are going to get burned up. And I think that that's kind of the, the overall sort of summation of what we're reading right now, which is this kind of 
uh, hurt God that's been uh, rejected by his own people and the world in general and him saying, all right, enough's enough. I'm going to send this fire to burn away what's evil and uh, keep what's good. So, yeah, yeah I think that's a, that's a powerful place to end it on this chapter. You have any final closing thoughts before we end up? Um, yeah, that actually kind of reminds me of something that Paul talks about in his letters about that that purifying fire where he talks about burning up works where like if it's made out of hay or straw, then, you know, it's, you know, that's obviously going to get burnt up in the fire. But if you make it out of like jewels or gold or silver, then that's less likely to burn. So it's the idea of like whatever it is that, that person is um, producing, whether it's um, going to last up into eternity, eternity or whatever, then it's going to get burned away. If it's not, if it is, and it'll last. And it kind of reminds me of the things that God can make use of. He's it's going to be purified. The things that He can is going to get burned away. So yeah, I I think that that um, is what we see. Some people escape that fire, like. <laughs> even though their houses are all like burned away. I think that's the passage you're referencing. And then some people like are able to build their houses in such a way that they, all, the houses also um, get through the fire. And so it's definitely a call to us in the new Testament to think about this and think about how we are building uh, our houses. And are we building uh, ourselves up to a point where we can survive the fire that's to come? Or are we uh, building our houses in such a way that, a lot of it's going to be burned up and we're going to escape by the skin of our teeth almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, uh, kind of a morbid way to end it, but sometimes <laughs> that's the way that uh, these chapters go. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back in your feed next week. Right, bye. Bye. <laughs>